0: Chapter 8 of A Voyage to Arcturus by David Lindsay. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Voyage to Arcturus. Chapter 8 The Lusian Plain. Maskell awoke before the others. He got up, stretched himself, and walked out into the sunlight. Branch spell was already declining. He climbed to the top of the crater edge and looked away toward Ifdon. The afterglow of Alpine had by now completely disappeared. The mountains stood up wild and grand. They impressed him like a simple musical theme, the notes of which are widely separated in the scale. A spirit of rashness, daring, and adventure seemed to call to him from them. It was at that moment that the determination flashed into his heart to walk to the Marist and explore its dangers. He returned to the cavern to say good-bye to his hosts. joy looked at him with her brave and honest eyes. "'Is this selfishness, Maskell?' she asked. Or are you drawn by something stronger than yourself?" "'We must be reasonable,' he answered, smiling. "'I can't settle down in pooling dread before I have found out something about this surprising new planet of yours. Remember what a long way I have come! But very likely I shall come back here.' Will you make me a promise?" Maskell hesitated. Ask nothing difficult, for I hardly know my powers yet. It is not hard, and I wish it. Promise this, never to raise your hand against a living creature, either to strike, pluck, or eat, without first recollecting its mother, who suffered for it. Perhaps I won't promise that," said Maskell, slowly but I'll undertake something more tangible. I will never lift my hand against a living creature without first recollecting you, Joywind. She turned a little pale. Now, if Panaugh knew that Panaw existed, he might be jealous. Pannaw put his hand on her gently. "'You would not talk like that in Shaping's presence,' he said. "'No, forgive me. I'm not quite myself. Perhaps it is Maskell's blood in my veins. Now let us bid him adieu. Let us pray that he will do only honourable deeds, wherever he may be." "'I'll set Maskell on his way,' said Panaw. "'There's no need,' replied Maskell. The way is plain. But talking shortens the road." Maskell turned to go. joy pulled him around toward her softly. You won't think badly of other women, on my account?" "'You are a blessed spirit,' answered he." She trod quietly to the inner extremity of the cave, and stood there, thinking. Panaw and Maskell emerged into the open air. Halfway down the cliff face, a little spring was encountered. Its water was colourless, transparent, but gaseous. As soon as Maskell had satisfied his thirst, he felt himself different. His surroundings were so real to him in their vividness and color, so unreal in their phantom-like mystery, that he scrambled downhill like one in a winter's dream. When they reached the plain, he saw in front of them an interminable forest of tall trees, the shapes of which were extraordinarily foreign-looking. The leaves were crystalline, and, looking upward, it was as if he were gazing through a roof of glass. The moment they got underneath the trees, the light rays of the sun continued to come through, white, savage, and blazing. But they were gilded of heat. Then it was not hard to imagine that they were wandering through cool, bright elfin glades. Through the forest, beginning at their very feet, an avenue, perfectly straight and not very wide, went forward as far as the eye could see. Maskell wanted to talk to his traveling companion, but was somehow unable to find words. Panaw glanced at him with an inscrutable smile, stern, yet enchanting, and half-feminine. He then broke the silence, but, strangely enough, Maskell could not make out whether he was singing or speaking. From his lips issued a slow, musical restative exactly like a bewitching adagio from a low-toned stringed instrument. But there was a difference. Instead of the repetition and variation of one or two short themes, as in music, Panos's theme was prolonged. It never came to an end, but rather resembled a conversation in rhythm and melody. And at the same time it was no restative, for it was not declamatory. It was a long, quiet stream of lovely emotion. Maskell listened, entranced, yet agitated. The song, if it might be termed a song, seemed to be always just on the point of becoming clear and intelligible, not with the intelligibility of words, but in the way one sympathizes with another's moods and feelings, and Maskell felt that something important was about to be uttered which would explain all that had gone before. But it was invariably postponed. He never understood, and yet, somehow, he did understand. Late in the afternoon they came to a clearing, and there Panos ceased his restative. He slowed his pace and stopped, in the fashion of a man who wishes to convey that he intends to go no farther. "'What is the name of this country?' asked Maskell. It is the illusion plane. Was that music in the nature of a temptation? Do you wish me not to go on? Your work lies before you, and not behind you. What was it, then? What work do you allude to? It must have seemed like something to you, Maskell. It seemed like shaping music to me." The instant he had absently uttered these words, Maskell wondered why he had done so, as they now appeared meaningless to him. Panna, however, showed no surprise. "'Shaping will find you everywhere.' "'Am I dreaming or awake?' "'You are awake.' Maskell fell into deep thought. "'So be it,' he said, rousing himself. "'Now I will go on. But where must I sleep tonight? "'You will reach a broad river. On that you can travel to the foot of the Maris tomorrow, but to-night you had better sleep where the forest and river meet. Adieu, then, Panaw. But do you wish to say anything more to me?" "'Only this, Maskell. Wherever you go, help to make the world beautiful, and not ugly.' "'That's more than any of us can undertake. I am a simple man, and have no ambitions in the way of beautifying life. But tell Joywind I will try to keep myself pure." They parted rather coldly. Maskell stood erect where they had stopped, and watched Pannaw out of sight. He sighed more than once. He became aware that something was about to happen. The air was breathless. The late afternoon sunshine, unobstructed, wrapped his frame in voluptuous heat. A solitary cloud immensely high, raced through the sky overhead. A single trumpet note sounded in the far distance from somewhere behind him. It gave him an impression of being several miles away at first, but then it slowly swelled, and came nearer and nearer, at the same time that it increased in volume. Still the same note sounded, but now it was as if blown by a giant trumpeter immediately over his head. Then it gradually diminished in force and traveled away in front of him. It ended very faintly and distantly. He felt himself alone with nature. A sacred stillness came over his heart. Past and future were forgotten. The forest, the sun, the day, did not exist for him. He was unconscious of himself. He had no thoughts and no feelings. Yet. Never had life had such an altitude for him. A man stood, with crossed arms, right in his path. He was so clothed that his limbs were exposed, while his body was covered. He was young rather than old. Maskell observed that his countenance possessed none of the special organs of torments, to which he had not even yet become reconciled. He was smooth-faced. His whole person seemed to radiate an excess of life, like the trembling of air on a hot day. His eyes had such force that Maskell could not meet them. He addressed Maskell by name, in an extraordinary voice. It had a double tone. The primary one sounded far away. The second was an undertone, like a sympathetic tanging string. Maskell felt a rising joy as he continued standing in the presence of this individual. He believed that something good was happening to him. He found it physically difficult to bring any words out. "'Why do you stop me?' Maskell? look well at me. Who am I?' "'I think you are shaping.' "'I am Surtur.' Maskell again attempted to meet his eyes, but felt as if he were being stabbed. You know that this is my world. Why do you think I have brought you here? I wish you to serve me." Maskell could no longer speak. "'Those who joke at my world,' continued the vision, "'those who make a mock of its stern, eternal rhythm, its beauty and sublimity, which are not skin-deep, but proceed from fathomless roots, they shall not escape.' I do not mock it. Ask me your questions, and I will answer them. I have nothing. It is necessary for you to serve me, Maskell. Do you not understand? You are my servant and helper. I shall not fail. This is for my sake, and not for yours. These last words had no sooner left Surtur's mouth than Maskell saw him spring suddenly upward and outward. Looking up at the vault of the sky, he saw the whole expanse of vision filled by Surtur's form—not as a concrete man, but as a vast, concave cloud image, looking down and frowning at him. Then the spectacle vanished as a light goes out. Maskell stood inactive, with a thumping heart. Now he again heard the solitary trumpet-note. The sound began this time faintly in the far distance in front of him, travelled slowly toward him with regularly increasing intensity, passed overhead at its loudest, and then grew more and more quiet, wonderful, and solemn, as it fell away in the rear, until the note was merged in the death-like silence of the forest. It appeared to Maskell like the closing of a marvellous and important chapter. Simultaneously with the fading away of the sound, the Heaven seemed to open up with the rapidity of lightning into a blue vault of immeasurable height. He breathed a great breath, stretched all his limbs, and looked around him with a slow smile. After a while he resumed his journey. His brain was all dark and confused. But one idea was already beginning to stand out from the rest, huge, shapeless, and grand, like the growing image in the soul of a creative artist—the staggering thought that he was a man of destiny. The more he reflected upon all that had occurred since his arrival in this new world, and even before leaving earth, the clearer and more indisputable it became that he could not be here for his own purposes, but must be here for an end. But what that end was, he could not imagine. Through the forest, he saw a branch spell at last sinking in the west. It looked a stupendous ball of red fire. Now he could realize at his ease what a sun it was. The avenue took an abrupt turn to the left, and began to descend steeply. A wide, rolling river of clear and dark water was visible in front of him, no great way off. It flowed from north to south. The forest path led him straight to its banks. Maskell stood there, and regarded the lapping, gurgling waters pensively. On the opposite bank, the forest continued. Miles to the south, pooling dread could just be distinguished. On the northern skyline, the Ifdon Mountains loomed up, high, wild, beautiful, and dangerous. They were not a dozen miles away. Like the first mutterings of a thunderstorm, the first faint breaths of cool wind, Maskell felt the stirrings of passion in his heart. In spite of his bodily fatigue, he wished to test his strength against something. This craving he identified with the crags of the Marist. They seemed to have the same magical attraction for his will as the lodestone for iron. He kept biting his nails as he turned his eyes in that direction wondering if it would not be possible to conquer the heights that evening. But when he glanced back at Poolingdred, he remembered Joy Wind and Panaw and grew more tranquil. He decided to make his bed at this spot and to set off as soon after daybreak as he should awake. He drank at the river, washed himself, and lay down on the bank to sleep. By this time, so far had his idea progressed that he cared nothing for the possible dangers of the night. He confided in his star. Branch spell set, the day faded, night with its terrible weight came on, and through it all Maskell slept. Long before midnight, however, he was awakened by a crimson glow in the sky. He opened his eyes and wondered where he was. He felt heaviness and pain. The red glow was a terrestrial phenomenon. It came from among the trees he got up and went toward the source of the light. Away from the river, not a hundred feet off, he nearly stumbled across the form of a sleeping woman. The object which admitted the crimson rays was lying on the ground, several yards away from her. It was like a small jewel, throwing off sparks of red light. He barely threw a glance at that, however. The woman was clothed in the large skin of an animal. She had big, smooth, shapely limbs, rather muscular than fat. Her magen was not a thin tentacle, but a third arm, terminating in a hand. Her face, which was upturned, was wild, powerful, and exceedingly handsome. But he saw with surprise that in place of a brieve on her forehead she possessed another eye. All three were closed. The color of her skin in the crimson glow he could not distinguish. He touched her gently with his hand. She awoke calmly and looked up at him without stirring a muscle. All three eyes stared at him, but the two lower ones were dull and vacant, mere carriers of vision. The middle upper one alone expressed her inner nature, its haughty, unflinching glare had yet something seductive and alluring in it. Maskell felt a challenge in that look of lordly, feminine will, and his manner instinctively stiffened. She sat up. "'Can you speak my language?' he asked. "'I wouldn't put such a question, but others have been able to.' "'Why should you imagine that I can't read your mind? Is it so extremely complex?' She spoke in a rich, lingering, musical voice, which delighted him to listen to. "'No, but you have no brieve.' "'Well, but haven't I a sorb which is better?' And she pointed to the eye on her brow. "'What is your name?' "'Osiaks.' "'And where do you come from?' If Don These contemptuous replies began to irritate him, and yet, The mere sound of her voice was fascinating. "'I am going there to-morrow,' he remarked. She laughed, as if against her will, but made no comment. "'My name is Maskell,' he went on. "'I am a stranger, from another world. So I should judge from your absurd appearance.' "'Perhaps it would be as well to say at once,' said Maskell bluntly. Are we, or are we not, to be friends?" She yawned and stretched her arms, without rising. "'Why should we be friends? If I thought you were a man, I might accept you as a lover.' "'You must look elsewhere for that.' "'So be it, Maskell. Now go away, and leave me in peace.' She dropped her head again to the ground, but did not at once close her eyes. What are you doing here?" he interrogated. Oh, we if-dawn folk occasionally come here to sleep, for there, often enough, it is a night for us which has no next morning. Being such a terrible place, and seeing that I am a total stranger, it would be merely courteous if you were to warn me what I have to expect in the way of dangers. I am perfectly and utterly indifferent to what becomes of you retorted Osiaks. "'Are you returning in the morning?' persisted Maskell. "'If I wish—' "'Then we will go together.' She got up again on her elbow. "'Instead of making plans for other people, I would do a very necessary thing. "'Pray, tell me.' "'Well, there's no reason why I should, but I will. I would try to convert my women's organs into men's organs. It is a man's country. Speak more plainly. Oh, it's plain enough. If you attempt to pass through Ifdon without a sorb, you are simply committing suicide. And that Magan, too, is worse than useless. You probably know what you are talking about, Osiaks. But what do you advise me to do?" She negligently pointed to the light-emitting stone lying on the ground. There is the solution if you hold that drew to your organs for a good while Perhaps it will start the change and perhaps nature will do the rest during the night. I promise nothing Osiaks now really turned her back on Maskell He considered for a few minutes and then walked over and to where the stone was lying and took it in his hand It was a pebble the size of a hen's egg radiant with crimson light, as though red-hot, and throwing out a continuous shower of small blood-red sparks. Finally deciding that Osiak's advice was good, he applied the druid first to his magan and then to his breve. He experienced a cauterizing sensation, a feeling of healing pain. End of chapter 8